I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. We've had way too many deaths of legendary musicians this year, and the latest is Jimmy Buffett, who just died of skin cancer at the age of 76. Three years ago, at the height of the pandemic, I sat down for an interview with Jimmy, and today I'm going to feature a brand new edit of that conversation. It might seem like a weird comparison, but Jimmy Buffett's catalog reminds me of Rod Stewart's in a way. There's the big commercial artist that everyone knows, and then there's the first few albums that are entirely different and really their best work. In Jimmy's case, he started out in the 70s as a poetic and melancholy singer-songwriter known for his story songs. And no less than Bob Dylan was a huge fan of that era. After that initial run, Jimmy, of course, turned the island vacation hedonism that he actually portrayed quite ambivalently on his 1977 song Margaritaville into a business empire and became a huge touring act as well. In our 2020 interview, conducted as he was about to release the final studio album of his lifetime, Life on the Flip Side, Jimmy looked back on his whole life and career. Here's that conversation. Heading out to San Francisco for the Labor Day weekend show. How has your songwriting process changed since, say, the early 70s? Obviously, you use collaborators more now, but what's been the sort of progression in the way you write songs? It's changed in the way, in the beginning of anything. I didn't co-write with anybody because I didn't know anybody else. Nobody <laughs> really was around and nobody, a few people were listening. So when I got to Key West them the very first time, I, when Jerry Jeff Walker drove me down there and I fell in love with Key West and moved there, I'd had five really bad years in Nashville, but I was still writing. So I came to Key West with a little bit of luggage and a lot of songs. And that environment, being in there and then soaking up the cultural aspect of from pirate days to the writers to the tolerant lifestyle that an island had. There was the Navy. There was a gay community. There were hippies. There were it just I fell right into it and took those songs there. And I think I soaked up a lot of that when I wrote those songs, which when we did this album, I went back and listened to those first three albums a lot. Mm -hmm because that was just a previous to anything else happening where I met people that I wanted to write with or other people. Mac McAnally wasn't around then and now he and I are pretty much co-writers on a lot of stuff as Will Kimbrough. And, and then now I ran into Paul Brady when we were in Ireland, an incredible writer. And so none of that was happening then. So you, you had your own stuff there and I had a lot of it and I had enough to almost make three albums. <laughs> and those wow. first three albums were the songs I went to Key West with. And I wrote a few there, but I would say 75% of them were written in the time period when I was, I was working down there and working in bars and when working on the coffee house tour, you'd, you'd start out like in the Carolinas or you'd go to New York and do the bitter end or something. But there were a couple of clubs in Florida and boy, when I got to go to Florida, you got very excited to go down there. And a lot of that writing was done in Coconut Grove when I played there. And then by the time I went to Key West, they moved in with me. And I did. I went back and listened to that. And I went, when we were in Key West, and I got on my bicycle and listened to the, I didn't listen to what we were doing new. I, I drove around town and listened to what we did back then. And that's where I got the idea. White Sport Coat and a Pink Crustacean was the first ABC album. And I, wa I wanted to put on a sport coat and go to the Gulf, go to the Cuba side. And, and that was, yeah, I wore one on that album. I wore one on this album. When you think about what you put out between 73 and 74 alone, it's crazy. If you could go back and tell that guy from 1973 all the things that have happened to you since, what would he make of it all? 
I was on a quest. I think he'd be very happy that we made it. <laughs> because you start out, you have to commit to this. This is not a part-time job. And it's in those days, the ratio of success is real minuscule. There's, there's a lot of wreckage on the road to success. I was watching, interestingly enough, for the last two days, my friend Frank Marshall, he and Alex Gibney have done a two-part documentary on Laurel Canyon. And I was listening to all those, that group of people I was listening to in a bar in New Orleans trying to get to California. You have to have that quest. And the guy that went to Key West, what he really went there to do is get out of Nashville in the wintertime and go, because I knew from playing shows, like I said, and I'd had a, I'd developed a pretty good following in the coffeehouse circuit. So there were two places or three places in Florida that were on my route. And I knew that child growing up on the Gulf Coast, I was a beach boy and I loved going back there. And then, and once I got on that part of the circuit, I knew I was coming back. Somewhere or another, I would get to Key West somewhere or another, I would get to California. Mm. California didn't work out till way later. You had to start <laughs> that quest somewhere. And then what I did in Key West got me to California. When you wrote the song, Death of an Unpopular Poet. Everybody's searching for the king of underground. Were you expressing in a way your own worst fears about your career? I wrote it about a poet named Kenneth Patchen, who was this hmm. very hip kind of beat poet back in. Lord Buckley and Kenneth Patchen were like, who were like poets and beat comedians. And I'd worked with a couple of guys that did their material. And that's how I found them. We need to go on. On that day, as I was the opening act and all these other guys were like that. Uncle Dirty was one the guy named Bob Altman. And he did a lot of beat poetry kind of stuff. And he did Patchen and he did Lord Buckley. And that's where I picked it up. I started reading Kenneth Patchen. I just love the fact that, yeah, the guy made it and he left his money to his dog. That's what I, that was, that's, yeah. I, and I had a dog, I had a dog named Spooner at the time. So I put my dog in that song. But the interesting thing was what the pandemic has brought about and having to, having to be shut in for a while. We started asking fans because we'd started Radio Margaritaville TV a long time ago. So we've been in touch with our people on a pretty regular basis before this happened. And so I just used that that platform to ask him. I said, what songs do you want me to play that I never play in the show now? And in an hour, we got 12,000 requests. And I've done them. I've been, do that's what one thing I did. I'm doing videos of them that we're gonna put on and Death of an Unpopular Poet is number six. Nice. So I got back, I got to play them again. And I haven't played these songs in a while. Stupid me. But it's interesting that it's you're going full circle on this thing to revisit that and, and come forward from here. And there, there's a lot of stuff that's happened between the time we went to Key West, the first time we went to Key West, this time to do the record, and how where we go from here. You have a whole different part of your life, this huge successful business that you run. When you go back to writing songs, does that feel like an entirely different part of yourself, or is it somehow all one thing in your head? It's interesting because, yeah, sometimes I do have to ask myself, I go, hey, how lucky was I to figure this out? And, and the way that it was is because most of the business that comes along with performers that go through it was always, you were told as an artist, you don't need to worry about that stuff. We'll take care of that. But that was part of the whole the way the business was run back then. It was talent was a very disposable commodity in my humble opinion. 
if you had somebody that had a drug problem, then they're going to, you would look for the younger person of them because they go, nobody tried to say go to, nobody asked anybody to go to treatment back when I remember. There was not a lot of help coming from your employer of record companies. Through that whole situation, I was lucky enough to, when I had no job or, and I couldn't play, I was living in Nashville at the time. This was in like the late sixties. I had to get some kind of work and I thought, okay, I'm going to be, ironically enough, there were other than, downtown and Printer's Alley, where it was all kind of country bars, there wasn't a lot of places you could go get a job playing live music. And I'd come off of Bourbon Street after two and a half years working Bourbon Street. I was a good street performer. I couldn't get a job. And I answered an ad in the Nashville banner. It said, writer wanted, a journalism degree needed. I went, aha, I have one. I answered the ad and it was Billboard magazine. And next thing you know, from being, from being turned away from Every published, this is when I was just trying to get songs written, turned away at every door, never having any success at all in Nashville. They were sending me free records and I was doing reviews and covering concerts. And I went, I like this. But I couldn't ever give anybody in a bad review because I knew what it took to get up there. But that period of working for Bill Williams, my editor, I learned what it really was, what the music business really was and what it really was, and still to most degrees now, is stacked against you as a performer, unless you take command of your own situation. So always at that point, and the way my parents brought me up and I, I worked all my adolescent life, I wanted to work. And I was working as a, in the grocery store, as a lifeguard, whatever. I was, you know, I had a summer job. And I liked having my own money and my own independence. So when it came to doing it, yeah, I wanted to take care of business because when I first got in, yeah, they took it all away. You want a record deal? And I said, I'd like to keep my publishing. They went, you can keep your publishing, but you don't have a record deal. That's what that was it until those things changed. So going through that gauntlet of figuring it out, I knew that my I wasn't that good a guitar player. I wasn't that good a singer, but I could perform well on a stage. And I knew that was my go-to. While I was trying to create these other things, I wanted to be a working musician on a stage playing. And so through that whole process, wait a minute, why would I rent a piano at the price the promoters pay and when I could buy one and pay it off in 10 shows? You start thinking, why don't I build my own bus and rent it to people and when I'm not out? So there were things that came from being you know, brought up in a shipbuilding family. I was thinking about those kinds of things which would make doing this performance easier and probably not cost as much. So it all started there. You gave a commencement address at the University of Miami where you talked about a moment when you had to make it through a show hungover. You made it through the show, but in your mind, you knew you didn't do the best you possibly could. And that was a big turning point for you. What happened there? Yeah, it scared, it scared me to death because th- you think you're bulletproof at that age and that time and you're in rock and roll. Yeah, drugs and sex, everything was around and you don't it. But you just, there was that, that, that thought process that's in there. But to me, it was the, at that point in time, I didn't want to make my family ashamed of me. And that was a very strong deterrent from doing that, to make that change in my life at that time. And I'd worked so hard and I didn't want to be stupid about it. And like I said, I had friends who were gone along the way to that. And I was watching that, the Frank Marshall thing on, on Laurel Canyon that, that's coming out. I, I watched it the last two nights. I always wanted to emulate those guys and actually they all became very good friends. But to me, it was like Jim Marsh was 27 years old when he died. Mama Cass was 32. And I'm sitting here at 73 thinking they must have been in their 60s. That was the shock to me that I forgot about how young people went away. And I just feel lucky I got through it. And I'm, you know, 
I made some kind of right decision at the right time. But again, it's too, I know I've done it and I'm not proud of it. And I know other people can do it. And they call it take the money and run shows where you may not be feeling your best. And you know that you can get away with something and the audience won't know it because they're so happy to be there anyway. And I felt terrible when those things happened. I never wanted to do another one. I don't think you ever went to rehab or anything. So what did you do to gain control there? I, did, I went to therapy. And when recovery from a, a bend became like, you couldn't get back up on the first, one day, fine, you can go up there and do it. And you can do the, you can do the, you can do the amazing hangover show because adrenaline kicks in. And you always were counting on adrenaline. So now we're going back like a lot of years now. This hasn't happened in a while. But but when it all of a sudden was two days and you're still feeling funky, that's, that was around age 40. I thought recovering from this is taking like surgical recovery days. I don't want to do this anymore. And I just didn't. Did it. I said, there's, and I got I scared myself a few times and that was enough to say no. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind the scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. You were good friends with the late Hunter S. Thompson. Obviously a brilliant guy. It sounds like you had some amazing times with him. And what's interesting is, by all accounts, he fell into the trap of his own persona. He kept trying to live it out in real life and couldn't escape it. And it seems like a real contrast to your life. I wonder if you see it that way. Yeah, I mean, we had an amazing relationship, but there were times that I didn't want to be around him because I knew he was going there. And there are other times he was an amazing kind of fun guy to be with. He took me to the first, he took me to meet Muhammad Ali in New Orleans after the Leon Spinks fight. So Hunter had, yeah. And Hunter was, he was a grown up, adolescent, smart, incredible individual. And you looked at friends he had, and he was more political than anybody I knew at that time, but he could get into the doors and he wasn't just political to one view of himself or what his politics were, but everybody in there are people I know today that I see on TV and journalists and all were great friends of hunters, conservatives, liberals, crazy, whatever they were. He, because I think in a way he got to be what, and got to say what they couldn't. And it's like maybe in the music business, there, there's so many people out there that want to make it in any of the sports or music or whatever it is that they want to do that, that they have a job that sucks, but they think ours is just like fantasy land. And it's not, it's like anything else, but you have a lot of people out there that wish they could be somebody else. And I think that with Hunter has held on a long time. He was an amazing guy. Tragedy, yeah. I'm very sorry that he did what he did. And you could see it coming. I hate to say that, but you could see it coming. And I didn't know whether he could stop. So I don't have the answer to why he did it, but I knew he wasn't going to do it. You have a new song called The Devil I Know, and you sing about being back at a bar at 3 a.m. And is that a call you still hear from time to time? Do you have that little bit of regression in your life? Oh, no, no. And I lived through enough of those things. And, and the devils I put in that song were people that my, my dear friend, my first Ricky Ben and my roommate in college, we started our first band together, Hunter, of course, and Phil Clark, who I wrote Power Looks at 40 about. They were devils. They could have devil. I didn't, I had, a, as a Jesuit Catholic trained altar boy, I had a little, that angel didn't go far. That devil was still there. I think they had a little more of the devil than me. So 
I'd hang with them, but not that long. I went to Mardi Gras this year in New Orleans, and no, I could. I remembered what state I went to Mardi Gras in before that, and I had I had eight tequila, went to parades, ate dinner, was in bed. I did what I did, and I had a really good time, and didn't think. I mean, I thought about that how I'd done it before, and <laughs> I was okay with it now, and I had probably had a better time because I remembered the whole thing. <laughs> when I really listen to the song Margaritaville, I've always heard the melancholy in it. It's not even a subtle thing. It's a big part of this song. I don't know if it's because of your upbeat persona or what, but it's so fascinating that a song with that obvious melancholy not only became a huge hit, but the linchpin of a whole brand of escapism. So how do you kind of reconcile that in your own mind? I never thought about it when I wrote it. And like I started it in Austin, Texas in a bar. A friend of mine has put me on a plane to go back to Key West and I finished it in Key West and I played it in the bar and people liked it. But I go back to Ry Cooter said once, you never know what the public's going to buy. You never do. The interesting thing to your point is that when we did the musical and we did the play, when it was presented in the play by Chris Ashley, the director, and Chris Yonke, the music director that I work with there, it is they did it as a melancholy song. And it goes into the verse at the end. And crowds of people that heard that song heard it that way. And me too, I went, man. It's stunned. Yeah, there's a little melancholy in here, but you got to get over it. And you got, I always love that part of the show because audience is like, when I'm playing it, it's like, ah! and at this point, people are listening like they were in a theater. And then by the end of it, everybody's singing and it takes its way out. But it's the theme of Mardi Gras is folly chasing death. So you got to have fun to keep the devil away. But I love the way that they did it there. And I've never done it that way, but I sure like listening to it that way. When you first heard years ago that Bob Dylan had covered A Pirate Looks at 40. Yes, I am a pirate, 200 years too late. The cannons don't thunder, there's nothing to plunder. I'm an over 40 victim of fate. What was your reaction to that? What do you think? Yeah, I think it was 85. He did it with Joan Baez at a concert somewhere out west. Yes, I I think it was an Anna Nuke or a Peace Sunday Rally 1982. 1982. And of course, there was no social media back there. I didn't know. And somebody told me about it later. And I went, what? And then, because you couldn't see it. I knew it had happened, but I don't think I saw it happen. Was I thrilled about it? Yeah, unbelievable. And then, Years later, I met Dylan in St. Bart's when he sailed in on his boat, and I spent a day with him on his boat. It was oh, wow. pretty amazing. He likes that song. How can I say? I, I was walking through Gustavia in the harbor, and I was going by the Marine Supply Store, and I was looking in the window, and, and I heard this voice say, hey, Jimmy, that's a good, nice-looking pair of shoes, isn't it? And I looked around and went, that's Bob Dylan. <laughs> so he invited me out on the boat. We spent all day together on the boat. And then he was seeing a, a girl that I knew on the island. Then he sailed away. And, uh, and I knew his, I knew a couple of guys that worked for him on the road. And then as the funny back into this, so I spent that day and I mean, we sat there and talked and got stoned all day long. But then later I was in Paris doing something. And I think it was when Dylan was with Petty 
And I went to see the show and I knew Jim Callahan, the security guy. And he said, yeah, Bob's been looking for you. He wants to see you. And I thought, all I remember of my time with Bob Dylan was that one day on the boat in St. Barts. So cut to two or three years later. And I'm thinking, man, we have a bond here. And I go backstage. And I think it was the Zenith in Paris. And Callahan said, he's right over there. Go over there and see him. And Dylan was sitting there eating, had his gloves on. And he's going to have his hoodie on. And I said, I went, Bob, how you doing? He went, huh? And he ate. He never said a word. I sat there the whole time. I ate my meal. I said, have a good show. See you later. Went, huh? That was it. Mm. And I haven't seen him since. <laughs> I think some people who have odd encounters like that with Dylan theorize that maybe he wasn't wearing his glasses. So maybe that could have been it. I never thought of that. Maybe. I'm going to use that because, yeah, he didn't look up much. I remember that. Has it ever felt like your touring success and your business success have overshadowed the songwriting at all in people's minds? It doesn't, but it amazes me now that I go back and look at the volume of, of how much is there. Because if you made an album a year because they wanted an album a year and you had enough stuff. And then as success came along, and as I said, we were a touring band. It didn't matter to me because we never got on MTV. We, you know, I had two, or two, maybe three things that got on Top 40 Radio. We were big hit makers, but we drew. We drew people. And that was, as somebody said once, we were like deadheads with credit cards. People came out <laughs> to see us because they wanted to have a good time. That's all I can figure out. And what, but what was good about it is every now and then I could slip something in and like, he went to Paris is one of my favorite songs I wrote yeah. about somebody. And, uh, and it, it, everybody loves that song, you know, and it's like, and I do, I've done Death of an Unpopular Court one or two times. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> there are songs that people do go to the ballads. And yeah, the songwriting probably gets overlooked sometimes, but I don't mind. I've had a great run of everything and I'm enjoying it. And I'm not telling people what to listen to. Like I said, once they're out the door, it's up to you make it for them. You don't make it for yourself. And, and people have different tastes and different ideas about what they think are the better songs. They can have whatever they want with that because I'm not going to try to make it any different. When you look back at your life on stage, was there ever a singular peak experience for you? Just totally transcendent moments? Oh, yeah. I, I can tell you, the first one that comes to mind to me, I've had some, it's not the size of the crowd. I play big places. And there, yeah, of course, there are times you get up there and you're playing to, to 45,000 people. And you turn around and go, can you fucking believe this? And I say to the <laughs> band, but my band is, we're like that. <clears throat> it's still, it should be something that's awesome that kind of takes your breath away. I think and if you're a performer, because you're making it happen, but they're having a good time. But the one that most sticks out in my mind is, again, it, it was back, we were basically an opening act at the time when we were doing sheds and promoters would start you in clubs and they, it was like minor league ball. You'd, if they liked you and you were drawing and they saw potential, they'd keep you on and eventually you could make it a headliner. We had made it through the list and we were playing Blossom Music Festival outside of Cleveland and in Cuyahoga Falls, I'll tell them that. And, and so we'd done it like probably three or four times as a headliner. We draw four or 5,000 people and the place held 18,000, but promoters still kept us going. And that was our draw. And I remember, I think at one point, I think Bonnie opened for us there or the Little Feet or so. We were combined up with those guys. And one, I started open for them and they would open for us. And so we were just going to work as usual to a show there. And we were in the cars driving from the airport into the venue. And as we got close, I saw this guy on the side of the road that had a sign that said, need tickets. And I'm in the car and said to the guys, hell, what does he need tickets for? There's plenty <laughs> of tickets in there. And we got there 
And I can't remember which promoter it was at the time. came out and said, you sold out. And I went, oh, what? He said, blossom. <laughs> and it happened like that. The year before, it had been 5,000 people. That day, 18,000 people showed up. And walk out on that stage to that, I will never forget that. Because everything, all the hard work and all the things that we had all done together, my band, my crew, and everybody, having a good time and being happy where we were, hoping one day maybe we could be like the Eagles we opened for or Fleetwood or whatever. That was our goal. And then all of a sudden, when you realize that it happened, it was a great moment. It really was. When was the last time you got to be the other Jimmy Buffett and spend some time on a boat for a couple of days or be on the beach for a few days? Do you actually get to go into that mode still? Like yesterday. Yeah. I was paddleboarding yesterday. Yeah. I love that. Well, I, no, I'm going now. When I finish this interview, I think it's a nice little wave out there. I'm going to go surf. On your new album, you sing Live Like It's Your Last Day. And I guess I was wondering whether you think that's actually good advice or not. When you've had a couple of close calls, like airplane crash, stage dive, and you think you're live, probably living on borrowed time, I tend to live like it's my last day. You never know. And I've lost, the older you get, you, at 73, it's very strange thing about And not getting any younger, one thing, but what you're doing is losing a lot of friends, but it, 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 it's a constant progression towards the, what's there. And at the end, everybody goes to some spot. But the thing of it was, I, I think, Having those two kind of escapes from having been, I could have been out of here a couple of times. And Jimmy, when you do leave us, how would you like to be remembered? What would you like people to say about you? I'd say he had a good time and made a lot of people happy would be good. Yeah, that'd be good. And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.